Almighty God, we thank you for your word to us. And we ask that you would speak to us now by your Holy Spirit. So we might know you better and love you more. Amen. Now, I, I fessed up to the nine o'clock service this morning. I love, I normally come to them and say, I love the lectionary. Isn't it fantastic? We've got this resource where people sit down and they, they pair up reading so that every day there's a psalm, there's an Old Testament, there's a New Testament reading. Uh, and so we read the whole Bible and we're not just taken to the vicar's favourite bits. Uh, and sometimes God speaks through the way the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the, the way they come together and they reflect off each other. It's fantastic. So I will confess to you that when I read the readings for today, there's a part of me that went, oh my giddy aunt. <laughs> Who puts this stuff together? This is outrageous. Um, Jeremiah has this reputation for being someone who is uh, depressed uh, and upset and sad and grieving the whole time. The book of Lamentations is accredited to Jeremiah. Um, he's just a bit of a, a downer. We, we think we read about him months ago when he was called, when God said, I have set you apart. You're going to be my prophet to the people. And, you know, Jeremiah was only sort of like a kid at that point. He's like, I'm too young. God says, don't say you're too young. I'll put my words in your mouth. You will go wherever I send you and speak the words I give you. He's like, oh, this is fantastic. We are eight chapters into the book. And Jeremiah says, my grief is beyond healing. My heart is broken. And as I said, we know that um, it doesn't get a lot better for Jeremiah. Actually, he's going to keep on prophesying to his people that unless they repent, unless they turn back to their God, then uh, there will be destruction. And actually, Jeremiah watches as the Babylonian army comes in and destroys Jerusalem and takes people away uh, into exile. He sees it coming, he sees it happening, and then he lives in the aftermath of it. But that's not what this is about. All that stuff happens later on in the book. So where he says... um, I would weep day and night for all my people who have been slaughtered. Well, this is before the exile, so he can't be talking about um, when the Babylonians come, because that's not happened yet. So you think, okay, so what what is he talking about? Um, And so whenever you think that, whenever you're reading the Old Testament or any passage, and you go, "I, I don't get what he's talking about, the first thing to do is to go, well, that's a chunk. Let's read the whole of the chapter. Let's see what's happened just before that. If that doesn't explain it, go to the chapter before that and read the two of it. Uh, Because these things are meant to be read as a whole. We dip in and out. But they are meant to be read kind of continuously. And so if we go back to chapter 7, and you have uh, verse 30 and 31. It goes like this. The people of Judah has sinned before my very eyes, says the Lord. They have set up their abominable idols right in the temple that bears my name, defiling it. They have built pagan shrines at Topheth, the garbage dump in the middle of Ben-Hinnom, and there they burn their sons and daughters in the fire. I've never commanded such a horrible deed. It never even crossed my mind to command such a thing. So with that in mind, 
Jeremiah's weeping makes a lot of sense. This is God's people, the people he rescued out of Egypt, he took out of slavery and brought them into a promised land saying, don't mix with the people there, they've got other gods, worship me, you keep my laws, I will look after you, you'll be one people, I'll be your God and we will do this. And yet the people, they married with other races, other nations, and you know that thing, you've got family and one worships one thing, one worships a different religion, and generally speaking, someone's got, something's got to give, hasn't it? Uh, and so you have people who are uh, Israelites by birth and by tradition, by culture, have been drawn to other forms of worship. And actually drawn so deeply that when uh, Asherah or Baal, or one of the other gods, has said, well, the gods need appeased. And so therefore you need to throw a child into the fire, there needs to be sacrifice. They are doing this. Their children are being killed as part of the religious worship of the nations around them. And God says, what are you doing? The, the covenant is that if you follow me, if you obey my commands, I would look after you and I would ensure that you are fertile, that you have children. You know, Proverbs and stuff like children are a blessing from God. And yet they've gone so far away following other gods, they've taken part in these horrific ceremonies. And God speaks judgment uh, in chapter 8. Verse 18 is Jeremiah's response. Having seen what's going on, having seen what's happening, Jeremiah weeps. Jeremiah's heart is broken to see God's people just doing disgraceful, hurtful, appalling things. And that children are being hurt by this. I know Jeremiah is he preaches to them, he prophesies, this is wrong, you need to turn. But actually at this moment, he just sits and he weeps. Now in our worship together, we're all in different places in our lives. And often our worship is joyful, it's reflective, it's God, you are great. Actually scripture reflects the full experience of people. The Psalms have people worshipping God out of all sorts of emotions and situations. And often they call out in lament. They say, God, where are you? How is this happening? How is... My heart is oppressed. It's crushed within me. And God hears that. And it's not only okay, but God has preserved it. God has inspired people to write it down, to keep it together and make it part of our holy God-breathed scripture today so that we read this and it's part of how we understand God, is that we can come to God and say, if only my head were a pool of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night. That's a godly sentiment. God is okay with that or it would not be here in our scriptures. But it's worth noting what he's grieving over.
and what he's grieving over is an issue of justice, an issue of oppression, an issue of people having gone wrong to such an extent that children are being hurt. Actually, you'd look at this and say, this is a godly grief. That actually Jeremiah is reflecting some of how God feels as he looks on his people and that situation. And sometimes I think we, uh, in our worship, in our prayers, we don't give God permission to share his heart with us for the things that hurt him. We can share with God uh, when things have hurt us. And God shares that with us. But actually Jeremiah here isn't coming to God because he is hurt. He's coming to God and he is sharing God's heart. God is saying, look at this. This is not okay. How can anyone look at this and not weep? And Jeremiah shares that emotion, that feeling from God and Christ. So hold on to that as we go and we look at our gospel reading uh, which again is one of those ones that I, I really don't like preaching on it's the parable of the shrewd manager the lost sheep, that's easy the sheep he gets lost and it, it gets found again and that's fine the shrewd manager, a guy who's getting sacked by his boss justifiably and Jesus says look at him excellent what? You can't swindle people, and that'd be okay, surely. What, how, how is Jesus okay with this? And okay, this says a couple of things I think, in, deep, in terms of what Jesus thinks is good in this story and why he's sharing it, uh, that came out of what this guy did, uh, even though clearly he was being dishonest uh, to his boss. The first is that he knew that the judgment was coming, he knew there was going to be a reckoning. His boss had said, um, this is outrageous, you wasted my money. Make a report up, bring to me, and we'll go through it, and I'm going to sack you. Now, sometimes you, people get given notice like that, and they go to denial. It's like, it's not happening, la da 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 And then they get to the meeting, like, he actually sacked me. I don't think he meant it. I'm sacked. This manager's like, okay, he said that, he's serious, I, I need to do something about it. But he, you know, in, in, in realising that the end is coming, <laughs> that this, this reckoning is coming, he's realistic. You know, look, if I've got no income, if I've got no job, I, I know myself I could not beg. I could not bring myself to go to people and say, spare a copper, governor, price for a cup of tea. It, it's not me, I can't do it. But actually, I've spent 25 years holding a pen. No one's going to pay me to dig. If I do a day's digging, a day's hard labour, that's my life gone, I'm dead. <laughs> and I've got to say, as a vicar, someone who stands up and talks and drinks tea for a living, I can empathise with that. <laughs> I don't want a job breaking ground for a living. I, I, I made, went to university to get a nice indoor job with no heavy lifting. Um, so he goes, what do I do? And so then he has this idea and he calls in all the people who owe his master money. And he says, right, okay, how much do you owe? And it's like, 800 gallons of olive oil. How much is that worth? Hundreds of gallons of olive oil. And it's like, oh, this was like, okay, halve it. Well, look, I've got the, I'm getting the tipex out. There you go. We'll just say you owed 400, and that's fine. How much did you owe? 200 bushels. Okay, make that 100. 
scrub that out, 100, okay? But just remember, when I come looking for a job on Monday, who saved you 400 gallons of olive oil? Okay, that, that was me. Yeah, yeah, we can do something. Excellent, see you later. And there's this sense of trying to grease the wheels that might provide him with uh, bread with a living once the sack comes. And then the employer says, um, well, the rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. There's a sense of this person gets his books back, can see the tipex, but actually can't do anything about it. So he has to look at it and go, fair play, right, see ya. (laughs) That's that. And then Jesus says, it's true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the children around them than are the children of the light. And there's a sense in which we live in a culture which does, which shows that all the time, actually. We get stories, left, right, centre, of kind of, of success, of business successes and things. I say, oh, look what this person done, what this person has done. Um, and it, it's always just a little bit, dodge is the wrong word, but it's shrewd. So Richard Branson started off in the music industry, and the big break for him was he, he went to, he was picking up some, uh, some records to sell, and for some reason he had to make a trip across the channel. And so all his stuff was, was stamped as um, coming from over, outside the country or whatever, and he came back in, he hadn't paid the duty, but everything was stamped as duty paid. And he went, had that, ooh, oh, that's good. I can, I can sell those a couple of quid. And he started undercutting our price and whoever else was uh, selling records at the time. Um, but doing something that wasn't illegal, but it was, he was exploiting a loophole in the law, which meant he could undercut his competitors, and Virgin Music went up and up and up, and he, he, built, he started building his business empire, his fortune. Now, that, he didn't do anything illegal. He's not been challenged for that. He's written about his autobiography. He's quite proud of it. But there was a loophole that he was able to exploit, and then he worked very hard, because obviously making a couple of quid on each CD isn't going to do much unless you're selling thousands of CDs. And so he worked and worked and worked, and the money came. Um, you know Sophie, uh, who lives with us, who did the same around the world, she has worked with Nick Jenkins, who's one of, these, uh, one of the dragons at the minute on Dragon's Den. Um, and the way he made money to begin with is that he was travelling, he was in Russia, and he found out that a kilo bag of sugar in Russia costs about £10. Because they import it all, uh, and the people they, who import it charge a lot of money because they don't really grow sugar in Russia. And it's really like, oh. So immediately, he then tries to work out where you get sugar from, gets a contact direct from um, Africa, Caribbean, I've no idea where, and starts importing sugar into Russia and flogging for £5 a bag, stuff that he's buying for 20p. And he made lots of money. I think, oh, I wish I, you know, why don't I see things like that? Why don't I do that? I think, actually, let's be honest about this. If I saw a loophole like that, (laughs) would I then go to the effort of phoning suppliers in different countries and going and borrowing some money to buy the sugar and then to go and sell it and set up and build? That's a lot of hard work. I really can't see myself doing that. All the stuff Branson did with the CDs. That's a lot of effort. I've got enough money. I'm fine the way I am. It's okay. And actually, that's 
I think part of what Jesus is driving at is that sometimes as Christians we're content. And it's good that we're content because God said, I will give you day by day what you need. So, of course, we should not worry, we should be content. But there are people out there working for money, working for power, working for influence, who work so hard looking to exploit every little advantage, every loophole they can find, so they get what it is that they want, what they want to do. And we know that you know, money doesn't get you happy, doesn't get you this, that and the other. But then we find ourselves in situations where you can see other people and you look in our community and you think, actually, there are things around us that should change. So, for example, this week um, we ended up involved with some people who live on Stanley Avenue, but not on Stanley Avenue, they're kind of behind Stanley Avenue. If you walk down towards Ealing Road, there's a little industrial estate up an alleyway, and those industrial units were turned into houses uh, over 10 years ago. And someone whose children were at school with Zoe, they were being evicted. And they came to us saying, we're being evicted. And, um, and so we were trying to help and say, well, okay, well, how's that work, whatever. You need a letter of eviction from your landlord. It's like, well, he gave me this. And it was a letter from the council to him, dated August 2016, saying, we've been to your property and we found that uh, you have a building built in contravention of law, law da 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 da, da. Uh, And so, therefore, you now have to remove all um, refuse from that property before we knock it down. Uh, because we originally sent you a letter in August 2006, and we now see you didn't comply. So you look at that, and first you're going to go, this family moved in in, in 2010. So four years after the landlord had been told, you can't have this house. Uh, secondly, they're being described as refuse. <laughs> they're the rubbish in the house that needs to be taken out before it's demolished. Uh, and so you look at it and go, that's, that's a landlord who's exploited a weakness in our system. The fact that the housing, off, the housing department is overstretched, they can't do all the checks, uh, they can't follow it up, all that sort of stuff. And he's profited by it. And so you look, and you know, as a Christian, you want to help. You say, oh, so, um, okay, we'll, we'll put a tent up in our garden. You come stay with us, and we'll do that while you phone the housing office, you phone social services and everything else. And they, they went to, Ali went with them to the council, and the council can't help them because the mother has a visa, the father doesn't, uh, and the children don't. And so there's no responsibility to the council to, to support, support them and help them out. We spent all the time stressing and saying, well, what are we going to do? Then actually, once all the avenues were shut, social services couldn't help, housing couldn't help, the school said, we'll have to wait for social services to contact us. We said, well, we can't do anything. But actually, your landlord can't just throw you out. You've not got, any, you've not got an eviction letter. You've got a copy of the council's letter to him. So go back and say to him, we've not got anywhere to go. Don't throw us out. And if you do, we'll call the police and see what the police say. At which point then, the landlord's going, oh, no, 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 it's okay. We don't need to call the police. We've got a couple of days' flexibility and, and backed off. Because obviously his hope was that by just saying, you need to go, they'd go. And he's going, but if they come, it's a big problem for me. And this person's related to us. Of course it's a big problem for him. He's broken the law. <laughs> this isn't okay. Now, 
problem for me is what do we do 